Well, welcome back to Shifting Schools and this replay episode of the Shifting Schools podcast. This is our last episode of 2022 being released the last week of December. And as is tradition with the year coming to an end, it's time to reflect on the past and make plans for the future. This has been an incredible year for Shifting Schools. We went through a lot of transitions this year from new album art and website logos from Chrissy to Trisha becoming a full-time co-host of the podcast and taking on the role of creative content extraordinaire. I'm happy to announce that Trisha and I will continue working together in 2023. How she finds time to do everything she's involved in still blows me away. From her own podcast and newsletter, Be a Better Ally, to her new podcast, Unhinged Collaboration. Her dedication to educators, education, students, and the LGBTQ plus community at large is humbling to say the least. If you are not following Trisha on your social network of choice or have not added the Be a Better Ally and Unhinged Collaboration podcast to your podcast app, you should do so to start the new year. Link to both will be in the show notes. Shifting Schools also became a top 10 podcast in K-12 education globally, with Australia and Canada coming in at the top two countries our podcast is listened to outside of the U.S. We cannot thank you, our loyal listeners, enough for making this all possible. Thank you for your dedication to your students and to the craft as an educator. That brings me to today's replay episode. Our number one listened to episode of 2022 will be no surprise, I'm guessing to most of you, as it deals with cell phones in the classroom. Episode 216, released on June 27th, in which Tricia and I talk with our good friend Tyler Rablin about cell phones in the classroom. Of course, the debate about cell phones in the classroom isn't a new one. We have been having this debate for years. In fact, in April of 2019, I was invited to Microsoft's headquarters to talk about cell phones in the classroom. Here's a snippet from that conversation. The link to the full episode can be found in the show notes. 94% of students in a recent survey say they want to use their cell phones in class for academic purposes. Yet 70% of teachers say cell phones are disruptive and cause tension in the classroom. How should educators see these devices? We're really in this interesting spot right now where educators are trying to figure out what is the best use for the cell phone in the classroom. And that's really what this is all about, is how do we start having conversations with a generation who has always been connected? In the replay of this episode from June, I want us all to reflect on where we are as we head into 2023. My personal constant mission as an educator is to prepare students for their future, not our past. As I think about the conversation I had in 2019 at Microsoft about the cell phone, and as I re-listen to today's replay episode, I'm still convinced that if we truly want to prepare students for their future, not our past, it must include the cell phone in some way, shape, or form. Pretending it doesn't exist, being frustrated that it does, or that it plays as big of a role as it does in our lives isn't helpful. Understanding that it's here and it's not going anywhere, is our reality. As we head into 2023, the cell phone, along with programs like ChatGPT, the AI program that will now write papers and do research for students, will continue to have us asking ourselves what our job is, and how do we prepare students for their future, not our past. One thing is certain, when it comes to being an educator, we are and must constantly evolve in our role in preparing students for their future. 
At one point, that meant graduating being able to write in cursive that was legible, a skill that is no longer practiced. Then it was being able to type on a typewriter greater than 80 words per minute with less than 5% error rate. Then it was being able to type on a computer. And now it's being able to use ChatGPT to help you do research to write the best paper possible. And as my goddaughter texted me the other day while typing 80 words per minute on your cell phone. As we re-listen to today's episode from June, can we take what this conversation meant in June and what it might mean for us today and for the future of our students? How close are we to requiring students to use ChatGPT or required to type papers on their phone or required, as is now the case here in Seattle, to go to virtual school instead of having snow days because working from home is now a thing for almost 50% of the workforce? I ask these questions not just for us as an educational community to ponder, but for myself as well. Where is shifting schools at the end of 2023? I have no idea. I have no idea what we'll be discussing in three months, let alone what next December looks like. In my new Becoming an Educational Consultant Mastermind that I'm launching in the new year, I talk about the mindset of being a consultant is being okay with living in six-month increments. I feel being an educator today is the same. Technology is changing pedagogy. Our students' expectation of education are changing. Society is in flux at the moment with work-life balance and a rumor of a recession. For better or worse, the career that I love is about people, and education has always sat at the center of sociology, psychology, and human development. What I love most about education is that it's always changing. The kids the materials, the world around us. It's a state of constant learning, and I, for one, can think of no better profession than one where I get to constantly be a learner, to be better for those around me and society at large. Thank you for spending this year with us, and thank you for being part of the Shifting Schools family. Happy New Year's, and with that, on with the show. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. So great to be back here with my co-host, Trisha Friedman. Trisha, how are you today? I, I'm doing well. It's always a pleasure. And, uh, you know, today's guest, I I really think is a side hustle. I'm going to start a fan club for this person. I can already <laughs> see kind of like the merchandise and the swag. I know a lot of people would join that. So um, I'm very, very thankful that uh, we get to spend some time listening and learning from them. Yes, this is great. Uh, and if you want to know who she's talking about, she's talking about our good friend, Tyler Rablin. Tyler, it's always great to have you back. Uh, you've been on this podcast probably about as much as Trisha and I have been over the years at this point. So <laughs> it's always great to have you back. But you're doing such great work around assessment, around just thinking. Uh, if you want to just every day talk about being inspired and have like almost gut punches to your brain, uh, you can need to follow Tyler over on Twitter for sure. Uh, there's some great conversations that you've got started over there. But today is all about cell phones. You've been passionate about cell phones lately. Uh, and so we wanted to get you on to kind of talk about that. Some articles over in Ed Surge and other places on the internet, along with uh, your Twitter kind of blew up. And we can talk about that here in a little bit. But Tyler, welcome back to Shifting Our Schools. Give us a little reintroduction for those of you that this might be their first time chatting with you. Uh, and just how, how's this year been for you? 
Uh, it's been good. So, hey, everybody, I'm Tyler Rablin. Uh, it's great to be back on here. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a high school ELA teacher. I was out of the classroom most of the day the last few years as an instructional technology coach and made the call last year that I really wanted to get back in the classroom. I missed doing that all day with students and also just a lot of the stuff I was doing. I wanted to make sure that it would scale to a full class load. And so this was kind of my my way of getting back in there and making sure everything I was saying and talking about actually worked for teachers. Um, so I did that this last year. This this was a rough year to decide to go back to the classroom full time. <laughs> I'm sure every teacher has felt it. It's turning around a lot at the end. Um, so that's been really encouraging thinking about the next year and what's going to happen after summer. Um, I, I do most of my work in education is uh, it's shifted to be more around assessment and motivation and grading and how those things all work together. Um, but I have a, my background is mostly in ed tech and that's kind of where I got my start thinking about how do we do this differently? Like what are, what are the options and possibilities we have? And so um, those pieces all merge together to form a lot of my philosophy about how education can happen in the classroom. We're again just so grateful that you you have some time because we we know that you're busy and we know that you're starting a lot of really important conversations. As Jeff mentioned, following you on Twitter is sort of like mini PD when and where you yeah. want it. Um, and we really wanted to kind of just dive into a tweet that you posted. It was actually a a thread a few weeks back. I'm going to do my best Tyler Rablin impersonation and just read out the first part of it where you wrote, I used to be on team that's like, let kids bring phones into the classroom. We'll use them for learning. The problem and the reason I've changed my stance is simply that the attention economy makes this nearly impossible. It's a losing battle for kids and their brain. End quote. End my Tyler Rablin impersonation. Uh, again, that's part of the thread. We'll talk about the, the rest of it a little bit later on. And I want to point out that it's a tweet that's had over 150 retweets, over 2,000 likes. So part A of my question for you, Tyler, is why do you think that tweet had such a strong response? And the second part is, you know, a lot of educators do talk about Twitter as sort of, it's like the staff room uh, for us, right? Many of us are there, we're sharing, we're debating, we're having conversations. Um, and for someone like you, where you're always getting almost a wave of a response, that's a lot to bear, I would imagine. So I'm curious how it feels, how you cope with being on the receiving end of a giant response like that, because of course, some of the people who are, are chatting with you, you know, they are maybe peers or colleagues, you've worked with them. But I'm guessing, you know, more, more of a thousand of them are folks who don't know you, right? And so it's always interesting when we're having conversations like these with complete strangers. Mm. Yeah, so part one, I think it had a, such a strong response because teachers saw it more than they've seen it in years past. And I think, like, I am intentionally not saying that the problem got worse I mean, I, I think that's a possibility, but I think the real reason teachers felt so strongly is, you know, maybe when we were in the classroom year after year with students physically, if the cell phone, if the cell phone use was getting stronger and stronger and stronger, it was like the, what's the whole, the saying about the frog in the pot, like you turn the water up slowly and we don't even notice. And then take us out of physical proximity with kids 
And all of a sudden, when we return back to the classroom, it's like this thing that we haven't seen for a year all of a sudden appears to be much worse, whether it is or isn't like that's definitely the feeling a lot of I, I mean, even just the response to that tweet, but just in talking with colleagues, a lot of people are feeling like we're we're doing and this is some of the frustration I think teachers felt and why their reaction was so strong to this is we felt like we came back to school and we're doing everything we could to try to re-engage students and try to, you know, bring them back in and help them enjoy learning. And we were losing that fight to what is absolutely more engaging on their phone because it's designed by people who know how to engage the brain oftentimes better than we can as educators and they have tools and resources. And so I think teachers were just frustrated feeling like I'm doing the best I can to re-engage these students and I can't like their, their phones are just the only thing they seem to want to engage with right now. Um, and so I think that's teachers felt frustrated and rightfully or not, the phones got a lot of that blame for the frustration. And so there was, the, I think everybody just needed to vent and that's part of why it had such a strong response. Um, and then the second part coping with being on the receiving end uh, it's overwhelming sometimes. Like you can ask my wife, she'll be like, put your phone away. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's too, too many notifications, put it away. Um, but you know, the thing that I love about, and I, it happens everywhere, but Twitter specifically, like, I just feel like the interactions happen so quickly that it, I don't feel like I necessarily have to engage with everyone because people are responding to each other and they're able, it's, it really does turn into a conversation really quickly. Um, and so, you know, I love getting to read and see the responses, but I, I don't feel the need to necessarily respond to all of them with my own thoughts. Cause half the time someone else will jump in with something I hadn't thought about. And that sparks a new idea for me. So um, I guess, how do I cope with it? I, I, I step out of the way and just let it happen and, and read the responses. And usually I end up learning in that process too. Did you find, did you find with these tweets that the response was more in agreement with you or people pushing back or some other response about cell phones in the classroom or where this is headed? Yeah, there were, there were a number of different camps. There were a lot of people that just agreed purely out of, uh, I think out of frustration, not necessarily like philosophically, we think this is the way education should go, but it was like, I don't know what to do. You know, like we've got to do something about it was the the majority of the response. There were, there was a lot of pushback about, you know, these are some of the most powerful tools that we can, we've been able to hold in our hands in the entire history of the world. You know, why would we want to remove them from students? Um, and, you know, there are a lot of really valid points of here's how I use them in the classroom and here's how they've been a benefit. And so, um, there was definitely on both sides, you know, there were people that were just like, I don't know why phones exist at all. And you're like, okay, we've, we've gone <laughs> a little too far here, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, and I think that's what made it so good is just, you had teachers who were, you know, claiming to manage it well in their classroom and saying, this is how I'm doing it. This is, this is why I'm doing it this way. You had teachers who had already banned cell phones from your, their classroom and said, here's how I do it and, and how it's made a difference. So, um, it was nice to just see that many different perspectives about it. Yeah, and in, in your, you know, you, you also just uh, finished writing an EdSearch article on this, and you, you talk a lot about the research around the attention economy and ways that this technology is designed uh, specifically to capture our attention. Can you talk a little bit about what is that? If people haven't heard this idea of the attention economy, uh, can you maybe talk about that for a second? And then talk about, like, what what are some of the things that you were seeing in your classroom around just kids not or, you know, the dopamine hits that we know you get when you're, when you're in it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, I mean, the summary of the attention economy is right now, the way most apps and platforms make money is by convincing you to spend more and more time on them. And so the more of your attention that they can get, the more money they'll end up making. Um, and, you know, that's not new. Like you've seen newspapers when they first came out, the more subscribers they got, the more money they made. But the rate at which it can happen and really the the amount of understanding of the human brain that when I just like watch some of my students play their games, it blows my mind when you think about it from like a behavioral psychology standpoint of what these people actually know to do to get students to keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. Um, and so it's funny, I, when I started reading behavioral psychology, it had nothing to do with this issue. It was all about assessment and motivation and how the things we do in the classroom either motivate kids to continue doing an action or to stop doing it. And it just as I started seeing phones and started putting the two pieces together, I realized, you know, if, if my goal is to uh, help kids learn, I'm realizing like I'm fighting against people that are way better at engaging my students than I am and keeping them focused on what they want them to focus on. Um, and so that's why I kind of had to step back and realize, like, I, I don't know if this is a battle that I can win by managing. Um, I, I don't I, I don't think I can beat the teams that are developing these apps and social media uh, platforms on my own. And so um, one of the things that really stood out to me, I, I treated it and I, I still have a habit of treating it as these are conscious, poor decisions students are making, right? Like they are they are intentionally and actively doing this thing on purpose all the time. And, um, you know, there's a couple really good books that I mentioned in that Ed Search article, The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal and Atomic Habits by James Clear, which Patrick Green actually just recommended to me. And it was fantastic. Um, but both of them really made me notice how much of this is not necessarily a conscious choice that students were making, but habits they formed that were so deeply ingrained that, you know, they weren't choosing to check their notification. If their phone was there and it buzzed, it was a habit, right? They, the, the cue was there, the response was there, they were expecting the reward and they just, they couldn't literally at times could not help themselves. And that was kind of the big turning point for me where I shifted from, you know, it's okay for them to have it. I want to teach them to control it. I want to teach them to make better choices to this isn't a choice. And I think I've got to do something more than just encourage them to avoid their phone. It's got to be something a little more drastic to break that habit. Mm, I don't, I'm wondering, I don't know if either of you remember going back a few years, there was a podcast called Note to Self hosted by Manoush Zomorodi. I loved that podcast. She has Tristan Harris on an episode. He used to work with, with Google. He's become a, a tech ethicist and really thinks about, again, what if we were designing technology that, you know, is meant to bring out our, our best selves. And they talk about this question all the time, like, what do you want your relationship with technology to be? And, you know, I you're making me think about how I've had to keep asking myself that question as more of my work tools have migrated to my phone, as my phone has become better and better, I can do more with it. And, um, uh, you know, years ago, when my wife and I were on vacation, we had decided we wanted the vacation to be completely tech free. And what we I know this sounds extreme, what we decided that had to mean was our phones went in the safe in our hotel room, like we just, you know, like that was going to make it much, much easier. And I'm in my 40s, right? So I hopefully have more willpower than a 16 year old, I would think. 
And I'm just wondering how, as you're thinking this through as an educator, how maybe your stance has evolved just within your personal life as well, or how you've been rethinking your relationship with technology as a person, um, aside from also being in the classroom. Yeah, my, I mean, my favorite things to do are outside away from cell service, like hiking, camping, backpacking. That's, that's how I spend as much of my summer as I can. And it's, be, you know, in those experiences are when I notice I feel the most kind of at peace and the most relaxed. And, and it's because I've given myself that experience or I've been able to have that experience. Like I'm just on the cusp of when smartphones really came into prominence and, and were everywhere. And so I had like a childhood and a good part of my teen years with no phone, no technology. And I, you know, learned what that felt like. Um, and so I think that's the benefit that I have that I have to realize a lot of my students don't have. So when I'm approaching this issue, a lot of times I want to just like, you know, why are you not understanding this? And then I have to realize like they've never existed in a world where this wasn't the reality. And, you know, if they wanted to, they could be on their phones pretty much 24 um, seven. And that wasn't an option for me growing up. And so, you know, just my personal life of finding those things that matter to me outside my phone, um, you know, I'm sh kids have those and, and I know they do that, but I, I don't think they really pursue it as much as maybe I got to. And so that's the other thing that I think about with the phones is it's not a matter of just taking them away. Um, but it's, if I'm going to do that, how am I helping them see something else that is not going to be more immediately meaningful? you know, like learning is not more immediately rewarding than playing the game on their phone. Like that is definitely more immediately rewarding, but helping them see the deeper and more meaningful reward that something challenging, something that takes time, something that takes effort can be. And, you know, if they've got that immediate gratification in their hand and they can, they can literally like fight battles with magical beings and all that, like that's going to be more entertaining in that short term than, stepping away from it and finding something difficult and challenging, but ultimately more rewarding in the long term. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talked, you were talking about that it's habits that form. And I think over two years, we're here in the state of Washington anyways, the majority of our kids were at home for two years. There are probably habits, good and bad, that were formed when you didn't physically go to a classroom to learn. And some of those bad habits probably were being connected in your phone with any adult supervision at all or somebody even asking you to think about those habits. And when you say that, it just makes me think about like when kids came back to school this year, did we have conversations with them about habits? Did we have conversations with them about what are things that you need to do to be back in a physical school? You know, especially like especially younger kids, I'm thinking, you know, kindergartners who are all of a sudden third graders. And we, we've heard this, right. That didn't even know how to line up because you missed three years of learning how to line up. Like there's all these habits that are built into to learning, to life that we all had to kind of put on pause. And luckily enough, three of us here on the screen anyways are old enough that we, we can remember how to stand in line and we can remember these things versus, you know, habits that are formed in your, in your younger years. And I'm just wondering like, where, where did we have these conversations about, new habits, good and bad. And what habits do we want to keep and what habits do we need to maybe readjust because we're back in the physical world? 
other than do you wear a mask or not, which is pretty much the only habit that you kind of heard about. Yeah. We had my, my ninth grade English team, we like threw out an older unit and remade a unit around, we, we called it like technology and me or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we watched the social dilemma and, and talked with kids about it. We had a whole like reflective writing thing where they were analyzing screen time. And it's fascinating. I mean, it, this is what really hit home that it's a habit for them. I mean, I had students that would be like, I had 13 hours of screen time average last week. Like my average daily screen time was over half the time that I had in the day. Half the day, yeah. And and they would say like, you know, I'd ask like, how do you how does how do you feel about that? Like really, truly, how do you feel? And a lot of times they're like, oh, I don't I don't like it. I don't feel great about it. And so like seeing that there is this awareness of their experience and their feeling that doesn't match their actions and what they do. That mm-hmm. was the part for me of like a wake up call of, you know, this student doesn't need, you know, they don't need a teacher yelling at them for having their phone out. Like they are, they are truly aware that they don't maybe don't want their phone out in that moment, but it just, it, it comes out. Like it's just their, their cue for that habit is boredom. And as soon as they're bored, the phone's in their hand, like that cue immediately puts the phone in their hand. Um, and so I, that's, you know, I was just thinking of how do we, how do we help them with those habits? You know, there's, mm. they've just had so much time for that habit to be built. How do we help take it away meaningfully with these conversations that need to be had? Cause if it's just, you can't have your phone. And that's the end of the conversation. That's not going to necessarily do good, but you can't have your phone right now. Here's why. Like, let's actually meaningful, meaningfully spend some time looking at what goes on in your brain, reflecting on how we feel when we don't have the phones, things like that. Um, I mean, that's got to be, if, if phones are, if the rule is, you know, we collect the phones at the door or whatever it is, I would really hope any classroom that does that, it's paired with at the beginning of the year, at least something to explain, here's why. And, you know, it's because I think a lot of times it doesn't come across as I care about you. So this is happening. It's, yeah. you know, I care about what I'm doing and my teaching and my classroom. So this is happening. But I think if it's going to happen, it's got to be still student focused of this is why it's happening because I care about you. And here's the benefit I'm trying to provide for you. Do you think this is a stopgap? This is my thing, right? I, I'll be honest. I think that cell phones in the classroom are going to be inevitable. (laughs) I think that there's no way around it. Uh, I think, you know, there's going to be community pushback if we start going about it the wrong way, especially as we have, you know, we're coming off of another school shooting where it was students in classrooms who are calling 911. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to become a time in a place where we can have these conversations But I don't know if communities and just generations of growing up with a phone in their hand since they were 16 months old is going to be able to get us what we need in our classrooms. So I guess my question is, do you see this as a stopgap of kind of where we were? Maybe we as educational institutions have to take a pause and be like, okay, the cell phone thing kind of happened fast to us. There might have been some creep, like you were saying, like turtle in the pot, and we, like, and we didn't realize it. Do we need to kind of take a step back, reevaluate, think about the curriculum that needs to be in place to have the harder conversations, to even talk about at age three, five, seven, nine, before they ever become freshmen in high school, around these uh, around the, the thinking routines that are needed, not just with phones, because phones are just a 
tip of the iceberg. The glasses are coming. The watch is already here. I mean, you can take the phone out and really the phone's out in the hallway and it's still connected to the watch and you haven't really done much, in my opinion. I just, I don't know. What, what's your thoughts? Do you think this is a, is this a pause moment for you personally? Is this a pause moment you think for your district or I, I don't know where, where the whole, where the whole thing stands. I don't know. I mean, I hope it is like, I think about this is the ultimate form of, if you, if we're talking scaffolding, like this is all the way on the bottom end of scaffolding. Like if I were to yeah. sit down with a student and I mean, talk them through their paragraph that I'm writing, that's the equivalent of what I'm doing with the phones. And if that's where it ends, that student didn't learn, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's kind of two things that pop in my head. Like one, it, it's gotten to the point where I think a lot of teachers feel like they can't teach, like students right. aren't able to focus on content. And so there needs to be a pause a reset as if, if there were any other distraction that was, you know, so overwhelming that learning couldn't happen in the classroom. But I also am hopeful that when you talk about or think about like the competence confidence loop of and just the idea that once we are successful at something, we have the confidence to try something new. I think for a lot of students, the phone is kind of their their crutch, their safety net so mm -hmm. that they can avoid something they don't feel like they can be successful in. And if they have a little time away from it to just try and see, you know, at a really small level to start, I can do this, right? Like I, 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 I was successful with this, then they'll feel confident to try something. And it's this idea that, you know, everyone says that like motivation uh, precedes action. But a lot of the research says that's not the case at all. Action often is what inspires motivation. And so if we can get kids feeling like I can do what I need, I can learn, I can do this thing again. I'm hopeful that then, you know, the phone is no longer like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm, I'm scared of what I have to do in the classroom. Give me my phone sure. as my as my safety net. I'm hopeful that it's like, oh, I don't have to be like I, I was successful at this. I can do this, um, you know, and that takes work on the teacher side in terms of how we're grading, how we're teaching, how we're letting students fail and, and still be successful that way. They've got to feel that in the classroom. But I'm hopeful that when that happens, they get stuck in that confidence, confidence loop. Like I did it. I can be successful at the next thing. Let's move on. And, and I don't I don't need my phone to be the only thing I can do. I found something that's rewarding and I can be successful at outside of that. And what I love about you bringing this conversation into the Twitter sphere is that I do think it will get people thinking about ways that we can have sort of micro experiments around what might work. Um, I mean, for me, there were two things that really helped my high school students. We all agreed that we were going to grayscale our phones for a week and see how that felt. So none of the apps were in color. It made things slightly less exciting. Um, and then the other part of it was we all agreed, not for the whole week, but for one lunch in that week, we were going to be with our friends, no phones. And just as you were mentioning, like experience that, see what that feels like. Because I love that you point out for a lot of young students they haven't had that feeling and that experience, right? So they don't have the comparison point. Um, and then the other yeah. one that I, I love and I talk about all the time is the Pomodoro timer method, right? So it's also called the tomato timer where we're going to have, you know, 40 minutes of deep work and then a break. Or sometimes you do 20 minutes of deep work and then a break. And it has me thinking about focus as something that we really do need to experiment with and we need a, really a toolkit of strategies for students to understand how to do it and sometimes the systems are against us depending on 
how long your period or your block system is. Sometimes you're only just getting into the flow and then it's bell off to the next class, right? So that's an issue too. Uh, And I'm just wondering in, in your practice, what strategies you might be thinking about when it comes to helping students understand what focus is as a concept, but also that it can be accessible, right? And that there are multiple entry points into learning how to be a focused learner. That was the longest question ever asked. On the <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's been good for me, you know, this year, I think every teacher was trying to figure out like, how the heck do I get kids to engage in anything? And I think a lot anything. of teachers, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of teachers felt that and so it was really helpful for me to reflect on, I mean, because I think everybody has struggled in the past two years to keep focus on things or to be able to sustain focus. And so I've had to think like in my own life, when I have a when I have projects I have to do, like, what do I have to do? And realistically, I don't sit down for 60 minutes and focus that whole time. I chunk it myself. And so I, I talk to students about like, okay, here's what we're trying to accomplish today. How much time should we do this before we need a break? And, you know, okay, we need 15 minutes, then we'll take two minutes. Great. Let's do that. And, you know, just talking them through a bit. But I think a lot of the grace around that has come from my own experience and what I've had to do for myself. And then think, realizing like, you know, my, my brain, I won't say it's fully developed. There are plenty of times where I feel like my brain is <laughs> not nearly as developed as it should be. But like, you know, I've crossed the threshold of 25 or whatever they say, where most of my brain has formed. And then I'm working with high school students who that's not the case. And I'm expecting the same executive functioning from them that I expect of myself as someone who's practiced these skills and who has had time to do this. And so that, you know, even just recognizing that has been really helpful for me of like, what, what works for me? But also let's recognize these are still kids and and they need different supports and they need extra supports. And, you know, we can't have all the expectations all at the same time for them. Mm. And I think I would even like to hear like I think it'd be fantastic. And I don't know if we could even make this happen, Tricia. It would have to be next school year. But I'd love to get like a, a whole class of students on to be like, what works for you as a 16 year old, a 14 year old? Like what, what strategies do you have? Because to your point, I, I can't think of them. Uh, you know, I did not get a cell phone until I was like in my first job moving to Saudi Arabia. And even then people thought we were nuts because we were buying a cell phone, right? Like, and it was like the flip phone and the only game on it was the stupid little centipede game. If everybody remembers that, right? Like that was, that was, that was, that was it. And so, yeah, my experience of trying to understand focus in at that age is is very difficult and you're right you come at it from the the mindset that you have and i think that's really hard for a lot of educators it's like just put down the phone well you you don't just put down the phone when you have been connected your entire life like i loved your i i loved your question trisha about are we teaching them what focus is cuz i don't think that most kids have had to focus for that long. Like they've had, they've been connected in some way, whether it's the phone, the iPad, the the television screen, like they've always been connected and it's nobody's fault. They're the generation that, that is the connected generation. It's so I think there's a different skill set that we took for granted because we just had to focus or we daydreamed and nobody knew about it, which is what I did through school, right? Like I didn't do my work. I daydreamed all day, just waiting to play baseball at the end of the day, but nobody could see it because it wasn't in a device, 
right? And I think there's another piece of that too. I mean, there's there's some developmental things that you're talking about here, Tyler, that I think are, are so true, right? Like we're we're trying to do more and more with kids, the more academic focused we get, all of that stuff that we know is not really developmentally appropriate for these kids. Um, and then you add technology on top of it and it does become this, it, it becomes the thing. And I just, I, I hope we, I hope we get to a place where we can take a really deep look at education because to your point, like it's not just the phone, it's the motivation in our classrooms that's tied to grades. That's tied to what type of grading you do. That's tied to the assessments that you give. That's tied to how your class schedule is set up. That's tied to, right? Like it's, it's bigger than, it sounds too easy to say, we'll just take the phones out of the class or just use technology in a different way. It's a whole nother conversation. And I think personally, I think this is where we're headed with education. We've come out of two horrible, two rough years of online learning. We've just had a really rough year of trying to re-engage kids in what things are. Society is still trying to figure this out. Like there's all kinds of experiments going on. To your point, Trisha, like micro experience experiments going on. There's over 3,200 workers in the UK right now that are moving to a four-day work week remotely. Like we've got all these, like society doesn't know how do we transition out of this. And we expect kids to be able to just come back and pretend it never happened. Good luck. We, we don't know what we're doing yet. And I think education has to take education as a whole needs to take this moment to say, you know what? It's going to be different. Like you've read all the news. We're going to be living with COVID forever. Like it's going to be like the flu, right? And guess what? Education is going to be different from here on forward as well. It just is. And if we're not willing to have those hard conversations, have these hard conversations around where do cell phones fit? When should they be allowed in schools? When should they be allowed in classrooms? When are they not? What are the new skill sets that we have to teach around technology, screen time, focus, dopamine hits that you didn't have to have with me? I was playing Legos in college, man. I mean, I, that's what I was doing. I don't know. I just think we're at this really interesting crossroads. But I think within that, you know, I really appreciate the humility and compassion, Tyler, that you're advising folks to go to that conversation with. And I also really appreciate, again, in your tweet that you reckon with the reality that you had an opinion that's different from the one that's in your brain right now. And I do think that great educators change their stances on many things in their career. That's part of our, our evolution, hopefully, is becoming more open-minded, maybe even more humble, um, you know, again, as we get deeper into our career. And I'm wondering, you know, you looking ahead, if you had to guess what other stances or what other opinions you're going to just continue to have that flexibility with, are there other things that you think also need, you know, as Jeff is suggesting, sustained conversation, we need to bring this to the forefront, we need to be listening to each other and sharing more? Are there some other areas where you're thinking, oh, yeah, my opinion regarding X, Y, and Z might also shift? Yeah, I mean, it sounds funny to say because it's the area I focused on the most and, you know, the area that I consider to have the most expertise, but my assessment practices, I have no doubt will change. Um, I've just, you know, it's a never ending game of research, 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 and then see what works in practice. And, um, you know, there's even things like my approach to late work. Um, it's been a struggle this year. And I've always 
for the most part, allowed late work to come in and be conversation with, with students. Um, and I don't know what it's going to look like next year yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't, I haven't figured it out. Um, that might change. It's even, you know, I, a lot of my work in assessment has been, how do we make grading and standards more accurate and more focused on this is exactly what they learned. And I know exactly what they learned. And I've sort of had to have a reckoning of like, there's no way we can know that, you know, like there's no way that I can see perfectly inside every student's brain and know exactly that they learned it because I gave them this assessment. And so I'm kind of grappling with how do I, how do I do this in a way that honors kids, honors their learning, but still recognizes that learning is messy. Um, So, you know, I, that will, I think if you asked me every year, that would be my, I, that I could say that every year, like next year, I'm probably going to change something in assessment the year after that next year, I'm going to change something in assessment. It's just something I will, I've, uh, I've understood that I will grapple with it my entire career and I'm totally good with that. Yeah. And I think to part of that, and thank you for bringing that up and Trisha, it's such a great question you know, just how are we evolving? And I think one of the things to to realize, and I think we move away from this in education, is it is not a perfect system. It is not a perfect system and it's not going to be. And we, I think, have to stop trying to make it one. If it was a perfect system, every 4.0 student would be like the rich people. You know what I mean? Like if it was this perfect system to say, look, you graduate the 4.0, you get to go to all these amazing schools. You have everything in front of you. Why is 4.0 students the highest dropout rate in university? Why is somebody who graduated with a 2.2, who should have barely skated by in life, in most people's worlds, would be considered successful? It's a flawed system in trying to determine what do we mean when we say educated. And I think we have to come, I think we, education, have to understand that. And this is where, to your point, like especially with grading and miswork and, you know, it it's about miswork, yeah, but it's about... You got to do something like I know you hate doing it. I hate paying my taxes, but you know what? You got to do it. And, you know, I know you hate doing the work, but you're going to have to do it anyways. And if you pay it late, guess what? There's a penalty. There's a penalty when you pay your taxes late. Like there are there are other things besides the grade. And I know you talk about this a lot in your assessment work. But, you know, we've we've got to keep and I, I love that. Do a lot of research, put it in practice and see what works for you. Uh, and keep evolving and thinking about um, how do we just make it better? You know, how do we make it better? It's never going to be perfect. Right? And I, I do think, again, we can only make it better if we are doing that research, if we are doing that consideration from a place where we're willing to say, oh, maybe that was wrong and this is closer to right. And yeah. that's, again, Twitter, you know, what you do on Twitter, Tyler, is so invaluable because I think it's that constant modeling of, thoughtfulness and intellectual humility and a willingness to say like, I've changed my mind. Um, And, you know, Jeff, to your point of like, what's the point of being educated? I think that's not all of it, but certainly I think that's a part of it is that you are willing to change your mind when presented with information. And as you point out, Tyler, lived experiences that are pointing you to a new direction. Um, I, I just, I, I hope it doesn't sound like an oversimplification uh, of what you're doing in your work, but that willingness to change our minds is, is really, really powerful. Well, and we've talked about this on the podcast. I don't know. Somebody did a keynote and a webinar about this, that the three things you have to be able to do is learn, right? Learn, unlearn, and relearn. And of those three, the hardest thing to do is to unlearn, mm. right? You want to focus on a skill and Tyler, you are so good at making it visible for people and being willing 
over on Twitter to be like, hey, I'm unlearning something in order to try and relearn it, right? And I appreciate that because that's what it actually means to be educated, right? Your ability to look beyond what you believe to be true for something for something new and different. So as always, appreciate you being here. Trisha, thank you, as always. Um, I think we could talk about this for forever because I don't think this conversation is going away anytime soon. So uh, please, if you're listening to this and you want to keep this conversation going, I know Tyler will have it over on his Twitter account and on his blog, the good old teacher trotter. That thing's been around forever, Tyler. Like, when did you start blogging? That blog. Oh, that was like, I think 2013 was the first yeah. time I started writing. I it's Congrats. There've been too many other projects. The poor thing's been neglected for a while, but. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure this will be something I write about soon. Yeah, it, it's so it's it's such a great conversation, and we need to keep having it. So, uh, you know, go out there and find your resources. Follow Tyler on Twitter. Uh, he's such a such a great. Like I said, every day I read a tweet from Tyler, I'm just like, oh, that's a gut punch to my brain, and I end up having to walk away and have to go think about things. Uh, in, in my own beliefs as well. So, And if you're a listener and this is the first time you're coming across Tyler on Twitter, um, again, I, I also just really love that you have pinned, a pinned post are loads of your resources on assessment and grading. There's just so many templates. So if you're at a school and you are rethinking those assessment practices, that's probably one of the best resources in the world of education. Like I really, really mean <laughs> yeah. that Tyler. So head over um, and check that out. Well, and let's also, we'll put his two webinars that he did for shifting schools all around assessment and feedback, um, which are two of the still to this day, two of the most viewed webinars we've ever done. <laughs> uh, you're just so good at explaining this stuff. I'm going to really start the fan club. You. I just, I'm, I know it's got to, it's got, there's got to be a Tyler Ravlin yeah. fan club. Uh, yeah. You and I are number one and number two on the list for sure. So. <laughs> well, thank uh, you for taking time out of your, uh, your schedule. We know you're busy and thanks for talking about this and do please keep pushing our thinking, uh, keep sharing your own thoughts and your own learning, unlearning and relearning, uh, as we, as we go through this. So, appreciate it, Tyler. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always fun to talk to you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.